Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hey, Sarah, how's that brain of yours today? (laughs) My brain is full, Rebecca. So full. (laughs) Full to overflowing or full of the invisible? I have no idea what that means, uh, but it's starting to be full of ghost tours because it is nearly September, and that means it's, it's the start of ghost tour season. Yeah, the invisible. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> My ability to detect nuance goes out the window. So, hey, Sarah, it's ghost tour season. <laughs> yes, yes. Now that you say it that clearly, oh, they are so much fun. I... I always love this time of year, but it is nerve-wracking trying to get all of the pieces together, make sure everybody has a good time, and I'm excited for our very first one on September 1st. What's one little behind-the-scenes tidbit that you could share with everybody? Uh, We have a super-secret ghost tour guide Google Calendar, and completely overtakes all other Google calendars. It really does look very busy. (laughs) But a lot of what goes into building the ghost tour itself is all of the history that we add to the mystery of the tour. And that involves research and delving into the stories of people and who lived in our town and coming up with this interesting narrative and research is hard. Hey, you know who does a great job at research at the museum? Who? A gal by the name of Jane. If you've seen any of our uh, genealogist Jane posts on Fridays, this is the Jane we are talking about. The infamous Jane. And I had a chance to have a conversation with Jane, who is a certified genealogist. Uh, you know, so she's got the piece of paper to prove that she knows how to look up the dead people. And she graciously gives of her time every Friday. She's in the museum helping us with either exhibit research or genealogy research, uh, looking up land records, anything that we need, uh, anything that patrons need. Uh, Jane is there Friday afternoons for us. And we really can't say enough about how grateful we are for that donation of time. Yes. And the times when we come across a human that has a particularly difficult problem, we're like, we're waiting for Jane. (laughs) She'll know what to do. Shall we just leap straight into the conversation? Yes. Everybody meet Jane Lamuska. Jane, thank you for sitting down with me today and talking about dead people. I love to talk about dead people, but I'm very much alive. And my name is Jane Lamuska, and I have been interested in genealogy since I was in high school in the Bronze Age, (laughs) the 1960s. Why high school? It doesn't seem like a hobby for teenagers. And it wasn't a hobby back then, but it was something to write to my grandmothers. One lived in Indiana, one lived in Michigan, and I was here in Anoka. And I just 
wanted to know. Um, when I retired involuntarily in 2016, uh, I was a little at loose ends, and so I took an online genealogy for the hobbyist through Boston University. And it was just a short, maybe a uh, four or five week thing just to see where you were at because they offer a certificate program and you actually get a certificate in genealogical research. And it's a semester, so family things happened and I was able to start the program Labor Day of 2016 and finished up the week before Christmas that year. And I, I did very well. You, you are a good student. I would have no doubt that you did very well. Well, it was my job. My <laughs> husband was still working, and so every day he'd go to work, honey, and I would go upstairs and sit at my computer and log in, just like it was my job. And I did that five days a week. And so kept up on the coursework and all of that. But in, I am a holder of a certificate from Boston University in genealogical research. And research is research, whether you're looking for people or you're looking for any other type of information. Thinking outside the box is possibly the most important thing. And so when I finished that, I saw a little ad in the shopper, I think, or maybe the Anoki Union that Sarah had put in that she was looking for volunteers at the Historical Society. And I thought, that would really be fun. I grew up in Anoka. I went to school in Anoka. I walked the downtown streets walking to school <laughs> from the west side of Anoka up to Main and Ferry, across the bridge through all the downtown shops, stopping at Jensen's for penny candy when they still had the penny candy counter. And I went to school at the Sandberg building, which is right on Monroe, and then graduated from the Fred Moore building, which was then the high school in 1969. So what I do primarily when I volunteer here is I try to take all of the little bits and pieces that I know from my personal experience of living here and being immersed because I didn't have a car, so I walked everywhere. So if it was between 5th and my house on Rice Street, I was pretty well connected to it because I walked right by it. And what it was then in the late 60s and early 70s and to what it is now, a lot of things are still the same. So connecting all those little bits, so somebody come, comes in the door and they want to know about what used, what was the name of the drive-in that was across the street from the A&W over on the East River Road. Well, I don't actually remember. I didn't have a car. I didn't go over there. The only time I went to the A&W is when the whole family went and they were five cents and 10 cents for a mug of root beer. But we have city directories. And so you just look up the A&W and go, okay, what's across the road? Oh, it was the King's drive-in. So I know where to go to get it. What are some of the places that people wouldn't think to go? Well, the city directories, they don't think to go there. And if they're looking for people, my first port call is always the obituaries. 
you find out so much, especially in this small town newspaper. And we have the newspapers from the 1850s and 60s, right on through. And some of them are really super elaborate, depending on who it is. What's one of the quirky things that you found in an obituary? Can't think of anything odd. They're, they're kind of standard a little bit. Oh, the thing that is most annoying is when they're giving everybody's names, all of the daughters, it gives their husband's names, which is very helpful when you're doing a family history. Oh, she must have married this guy named Heron. <laughs> but it's Mrs. Charles. Mrs. Charles. You know, I'm going, okay, is it Dottie or is it Lori or is it Beth? Which daughter married him? Which leads to another, you have to poke in another place, which is the Minnesota Official Marriage Online Database. And that's, that's wonderful because you can connect. You can look by county. You can look by bride, you can look by groom. So you could look up Charlie Heron and find out, oh, he married Dorothy. So, and when, though that's a little deceiving because that's the day you got the license. Cause I looked up my own and it's off by a week. Oh, no. I know very, I know very well what day I got married. The 22nd of October in 1971 and it's a September something. That must have been the day I went to the courthouse. <laughs> well, that brings up a really good point, though, that, you know, because you're researching people that you oftentimes don't know personally, and you take these dates that you find as gospel truth, and they might be true, but in a different perspective than what you were placing them, right? So it's, it's true to the information that they know that you got the license that day, but if you apply it to the wedding date, then what's the domino effect of that wrong placement of information? It can mislead other people or somebody will come in and say, you have this wrong. My parents were married on the 22nd and you've got it for the 26th of September. <laughs> you know. And it didn't dawn on me at first when I first started using that database that that's what they had in there was not the actual wedding date or the date that you know, the license got signed off on. And so now I, I have gone back into, I will put about, and that way, you know, you're a little bit covered. Because if you have to go a week one way or the other, or a month one way or the other, you're, you're usually close enough. And if you're, you know, a hundred years ago, nobody's gonna tell you you're wrong. Right. What are the other pitfalls that you've found um, well, the easiest, the easiest rabbit hole to trip you up is to take what you find on Ancestry or find a grave as gospel. When actually, Ancestries, when they have the photos of the actual documents, that's one thing. But on find a grave, that's something somebody else put in there, and you have no idea whether they're a good researcher and they've checked their facts, or if it's from their family Bible, or if they've connected somebody with the same name. Because believe it or not, there's often several people in, the, in a town with the same name. Our friend John Freeberg is a prime example because he was having a fit over this lady married to a John Freeberg that he'd never heard of, wasn't in his family, 
and he's trying to figure out if his grandfather was two-time and his grandmother or what. And we sat at the computer one day for a couple of hours, and I finally said, John, you know what the problem is here? I says, look, he lives on Cross Street. Your grandfather lived on Rice Street. This is a different John Freeberg. And so you have two John Freebergs. That's the deal. What are the chances? Pretty, um, well, I just came off of a 3,300-mile genealogy road trip, and I am researching a Peter Snyder in upstate New York, and there's about eight of them all in the same time frame that lived in the area. And you can dig in census records, don't always have everything. And they have a lot, and depending on what year they are, it will, they ask different questions. And my favorite is the year that they asked, how long have you been married? And then they asked the wife, how many children had she born and how many were still living? And it's, you know, because it could say 10 and four, or it could be nine and nine. That'd be pretty rare. Uh, some of them seem to be very hardy stock, but it's really sad when you've got, you know, multiple, multiple babies and only a few are still alive. So how easy is it to access the census records for the average human out in the world? Super, super simple. They're online. You can get them on Family Search, which is the LDS or Mormon website, and that's free. You can get that at home. All you do is sign up, create a profile for you with a password, and then you can go in and they have you can search many ways. Or Ancestry, which is available here, and many libraries have it. And I personally have it at home. I have for years. So it's very, very available. And the only thing to remember is don't always count on the spelling to be perfect, like you would spell it, because he came to the door. What's your guy's name? Lamuska. L-A-M-U-S-K-A, he writes down. It's not a K, it's a G. He doesn't know that. She doesn't read and write, so she doesn't correct it because she doesn't see that it's not the way they spell it. And so it goes on. So when you're searching, you have to be creative in multiple spellings that you might be searching for as well. And some of the um, ancestry, for instance, will give you alternate spellings. They'll bring them up because there's the sound X and it's a sounds like. But the best way with that is <clears throat> if you're working with a known family like I am with my own, I knew, and you often know them by nicknames, you know, you have Ben and Dottie and whomever. But you find them in a certain point in time, 1850, when everybody's listed and you go, well, that's the whole family because there's all the kids in it. I know all those names, that's familiar. So when you look for them 10 years earlier or 10 years later, you find this Peter Snyder, but his kids have totally different names. You're going, well, I don't think that's the same family. Mm -hmm. And so you look further. And try to match up the names that you do know. And census leads to land records. Land records, knowing how to or having access to somebody else that knows how to, read a plat map or find property 
in earlier times just by the description or knowing it was in a certain area and then you can get drive drill down and they there's um it's the United States Bureau of Land Management, I think, that it connects into where you actually can, when they homestead, you can actually go out and get a picture of the certificate. And that just saved my bacon in New York Ooh, because it's handy. It's very handy. Land records can be extremely useful when you're, when you have a, like a common last name and there's quite a number in the area. You can really get down to this piece of parcel of land and watch who it gets sold to over the years. Does that work the same way with abstracts for houses? In a way, it does. That shows who purchased, because the house isn't the piece, it's the dirt. The abstract's for the dirt. It will show mortgages, and mortgages are probably when they first built it, maybe, or when they're buying it. So it's similar, but the actual land tracks transaction for farming is going to be easier to come by. Mm-hmm. What easier. about if the land was owned by a railroad, for instance, before it became personal property? Well, this, you'll still have the transaction in the book of deeds in the county as to when it changed hands from the railroad to the person because each piece has a unique township range and section designation. You've got the northeast quarter of the northwest half of the, you know, that whole big long gobbledygook legal description. Uh, But you can drill right down and find it exactly on a map. And you can find it in deed books as to when it changed hands. How have you seen that type of documentation change from, say, the 1700s, where you're looking on the East Coast, through to the present day, and the way we're doing record keeping now? Well, in the really early um, records, they did what's called meets and bounds. And my property starts at the big oak tree runs west so many rods and then goes northwesterly to the creek and that borders John Landis's land and then it goes this way and then it goes that way and it's often not a square <laughs> but they the landmarks that they use uh, those are called bounds and then they were all done in uh, rods the surveying like George Washington was a surveyor and that's how he surveyed stuff but they use physical landmarks. Well, that's not gonna work so much when the gas station on the corner isn't there anymore. Right. And so they came up with this uniform way of surveying, pretty much, you know, so they're square chunks and that's easier to deal with. They just measured it from something and it's on the map and that's where it is. Okay. Well, it's good to know that there's a certain standardization that happened fairly early on So when people walk into ACHS, you're here on Friday afternoons, and you donate your services for the the good of our organization and the the service that we can provide people, Um, we would also appreciate financial contributions for your donation donation of help. 
but if people were to come in, what type of information should they bring with them? It's very helpful if they have a specific goal. So they, they want to know, do we have a picture of the store on the corner of Barry and Maine? in that they remember in 1952 when they were a little kid. You know, that's easy. We can just, we can just look. Um, but when they come in, oh, tell me about the history of my house on such and such on Harrison Street. Well, that gets a little trickier because houses per se just sit there. It's the people that live in them that leave traces behind. And so we can look at the famous city directories and find out who lived there between the period of 57 to 86. And because earlier directories, addresses weren't assigned yet. Because we have one from 1888, 1890, right in that area. Or maybe it's 1991. Anyway, it's a really old one. And it will just say, Ferry near Benton, which isn't terribly helpful but at least gives you what part of town they lived in. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those old, old houses went by the wayside in one or another of the tornadoes or the fire. Sure, sure. Although we have a lot of those records. Yeah. But the, um, the hardest thing to deal with is someone that is interested in everything and doesn't have any goal, and so they go off on tangents. And it's hard to keep up because I can help with a lot of different types of things because I know a lot about Anoka, but I need to know what are you, what do you, what's your question? What do you want answered? I had inquiry, Cindy handed me, somebody had a question about a house on Van Buren and that it was owned by John Ward that started Ward Transfer and was Rocket Park named for him, you know, or did they, did they donate the land or what, you know, she, that, but that was the entire inquiry. Well, we have 147 entries on the Ward family. That was one of the first families I worked on tying all together because that's sort of my take on what I can contribute here is to take all these little bits and pieces of information about people that lived in Anoka and mesh them together and who's related to who, who married who, and put that in our database. So that was satisfying to say, to be able to say, come on in, we can, we can bore you senseless with stuff about the wards. And John Ward lived in that house until he died in 1964, because I checked the city directories. And this is how you know things. <laughs> and I found the article in the newspaper about the, the city uh, council had decided to name the new park John Ward Park because he had just died the previous spring, I think, and he'd been 81. You always need to die to get a name, I tell you. <laughs> so you created this wonderful component we're using for our social media right now. It's the ABCs of genealogy. And so we're trickle-feeding out A is for... Ancestor. And B is for... Begin. And C is for... Census, I believe. I'll stop quizzing you now. <laughs> but we've got these great 
um, little tidbits out there on our social media now. And they're just these great little tips that you came up with. And I am curious how, how long it took you to kind of put all that together for us. To be honest? Yes, of course. Probably less than an hour. Now you're just bragging. Well, I did, the idea came into my head, and I went, what about a Sue Grafton? And, you know, her A is for Alibi, I believe, her, her murder mystery books. And I thought, I could do that for genealogy, because I've been toying with, trying to come up with genealogy 101 for some of the, the gentlemen I know at the Anoka Masonic Lodge that are very interested in doing their own family research and they'd like a little help, but they don't necessarily want to hire me to do it for them, which is fine with me. I don't necessarily want to be hired because then I have to work <laughs> instead of play. It's a different vibe. Different thought. So I just so I just wrote the alphabet out and then I just wrote a whole bunch of them were really super easy. And then I just came up with them and my husband's favorite is why. Oh, do tell. Why is for you will never be done. Ooh. <laughs> there is always another dead relative to dig up. So what you're telling me is that genealogy is for the workhorse who never wants a project to end. Pretty much because if you keep on finding information, you put off having to write it down for all your relatives that, <laughs> that say, you should write a book. <laughs> I don't want to write a book. I'm not done researching yet. I can't write The researching is too much fun. I love that. Um, I'd like to point out to everyone that you did receive one of the first inaugural awards that MALM, who is the Minnesota Alliance of Local History, uh, gave out for volunteer excellence this year. So congratulations, applause all around. Thank you so much. It was totally unexpected. I kind of was very taken aback, but I wear my pin every time I come in. Well, we didn't tell you we were nominating you in case you didn't win. Oh, <laughs> So thank you for your time volunteering for us. Thank you for your brain. Thank you for the time doing the podcast as well. And I hope everyone comes in and uses you and wrings out all that information in your brain. And you'd be surprised how many people come in and find out I graduated with them a year behind them, a year ahead of them, or with their cousin or whatever. Gal was in today, graduated with her. Her picture's right undermine in the yearbook as seniors. Well, and to those of you out in Centerville and Ham Lake who have no connection to the Anoka yearbook, you can come in too. Jane doesn't discriminate. Not at all. <laughs> but I don't speak French, so I have trouble with some of the Centerville records and names. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Jane. I really appreciate your time. Read all about it in the Anoka County Library Minute. Hi, my name is Diana Nurberg. I'm a librarian for Anoka County Library, and I'm here with your Library Minute. First, we have It's All Relative, Adventures Up and Down the World's Family Tree by A.J. Jacobs. A.J. Jacobs is an author known for taking on a subject and committing himself to it, to the point that it almost becomes all-consuming. 
from the time he lived a year of his life strictly according to biblical teachings to the time he devoted himself to education by vowing to read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z. It's all relative is no different. After receiving an email from someone claiming to be his eighth cousin and having links to 80,000 of his relatives, Jacobs sets off on a globetrotting adventure to better understand what it is to be family. Next, we have Spirit Car, Journey to a Dakota Past by Diane Wilson. A Minnesota woman begins to research her mother's side of the family because she realizes that her mother hadn't ever really spoken about it. Throughout the research process and her travels, Wilson discovers her native Dakota roots and how her family is linked to the Dakota War. The author not only focuses on her quest to find the truth about her family, but also uses that research to interweave a fictionalized account of the war through the perspectives of her ancestors. Finally, we have Journeys Home, inspiring stories plus tips and strategies to find your family history, compiled by the National Geographic Society. This book is a collection of genealogical stories from writers, journalists, and others who traveled the world to reunite with the places associated with their ancestors. Included with the stories are stunning photographs of the locales, the people involved, and other family history mementos. Finally, I want to let you know about some genealogy programs we have at the library. Anoka County Library will be holding some genealogy and history programs at various locations throughout the fall. Check out our online calendar for more information and to register. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Longtime listeners of our podcast may have recognized Jane's voice because she also shows up in our Coon Rapids Dam episode because she and her husband Wayne, Jane and Wayne, live in one of the dam houses by the Coon Rapids Dam. Chortle, chortle, chortle. They love saying it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she also loves color matching her glasses to her shirts. So it, it's Jane. We love Jane. <laughs> she is normally here uh, at the museum on Fridays in the afternoon. So if you are looking for some genealogy tips and tricks that um, she might be able to provide, you can come and say hi for yourself. Or if you want to check out the yearbooks and see if you can find yourself as a classmate to hers. There are lots of good blackmail material in those old yearbooks. Just don't look up mine. That was a dead ringer of an invitation. I have the power. I can edit this out. Ah, but I do the website. <laughs> Coming soon to a website near you. Sarah <laughs> no. Given yearbook photo. Well, that was fun. Now what? Oh, you can sponsor a ghost tour. Go ahead. You can Becca. sponsor a ghost tour for a hundred dollars, seventy-five if you're a nonprofit, and all the money comes to us, of course. But it would be one more way of you to advertise to the lovely people on our ghost tours. We had uh, what was it, seventeen hundred people come through last year. So that's a lot of eyeballs, not to mention the website. We will promote you far and wide. We just need your hot hundred bucks in our hands to do so. Yeah. So contact us now. On that note, <laughs> we appreciate everybody listening, everybody that comes into the museum to use our resources. Thank you so much for helping our tiny little nonprofit of a museum um, with all of your 
love and donations. It is very, very helpful. Off See you next to... time. Oh, go ahead. Ooh. Mm. Off to more fun. Doodaloo. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future. <laughs>